Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. We're into the gentler political season, so we're doing something a little different. Over the summer, I'm sitting down with some interesting political figures who I think will be shaping the political weather over the rest of the year. Some of them you might be familiar with, others possibly not. This week's guest is Lisa Nandy, the Labour MP for Wigan. She grew up in Manchester and worked in the charity sector before entering the House of Commons in the 2010 election. After serving on the Education Select Committee and as a parliamentary aide to Tessa Jowell, she was promoted to Shadow Children's Minister. After her party's failure to win the 2015 general election, she backed Andy Burnham in the following leadership contest, but she was then promoted by Jeremy Corbyn to the front bench as the Shadow Energy and Climate Change Secretary. She resigned in June 2016 following the EU referendum and the failed leadership coup against the opposition leader. Now she's one of Labour's most vocal voices on the challenges it faces in its provincial heartlands. Lisa, thank you very much for finding time for speaking and welcoming the FT up to Wigan. So it's a couple of weeks into recess, so you're out of London, out of Westminster. What does recess sort of mean for you? Are you folks entirely on constituency work? Hang on a minute. Did you you just call Wigan provincial. Would you not call Wigan provincial? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I would call it the centre of the universe. It's very nice of you to come, by the way. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, what does recess mean for you? What kind of things are going on in your constituency? What's occupying your time? Um, well, when I'm not talking to FT journalists in my office over a cup of tea, a few things. A lot of summer is about trying to catch up with constituency work and things that you want to do throughout the year but you don't get a chance to do it's really nice just to be at home and ground yourself a little bit and get ready for what's coming next in the autumn which is going to be interesting and I always use August as a time to think a bit more I find it very very difficult to think when I'm in Westminster not just because the parliamentary day means that you're constantly having to react to things that are happening but also because where my politics comes from really comes from my home and my family, my friends, my neighbours, my constituents. And being here and just constantly being surrounded by people that I represent is really helpful for me. It changes the way that I think. It gets me out of that sort of group think of Westminster. It means that when I go back into the fray and particularly to party conference that I feel certain about what it is that I'm saying and and what it is that I'm advocating for. So that obviously leads me to ask you, what exactly have you been thinking about this summer? There's one or two things on the political agenda. You know, it's a really bad time for politics, so it feels fairly desperate. I have to say, if you come off social media, it feels a bit better. But it's just that at the moment, politics is very, very angry, not just in Britain, but around the world. We're living, as Pankaj Mishra said in his really powerful book we're living through an age of anger and politics is expressed very negatively but the thing that is really palpable in places like Wigan 
is the hunger for something much more positive. And the news headlines at the moment, they're dominated by Brexit, by the anti-Semitism row in the Labour Party, by the Islamophobia row in the Tory party. And actually, I get a really strong sense here that what most people want is a positive vision for the country. A lot of people have been sort of getting elected on the power of grievances. So Donald Trump is an example of that. But even if you look at Mexico and other countries around the world, there is clearly something very strong in that sense that people feel they've got a wrong deal, they're not being treated fairly enough. And that is a way of winning elections. In a way, you know, that's sort of not... Jeremy Corbyn was running on a platform of hope in last year's election, but was also talking about people who were getting a raw deal from things, the rigged system, as he put it. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to acknowledge that for a lot of people in this country, life has got worse and is very, very hard. We're sitting here in my constituency office in Wigan. Just after you leave, there will be people coming in here to see me who are struggling with what is going to happen to them, not just over the next few months, but what is life going to look like next week? And that sort of existence, it's gruelling, it's difficult. You've got to acknowledge it. But you were right to say that one of the powerful things about the 2017 election, and in fact about Jeremy's leadership election, was that it was run on a platform of hope and possibility. And actually, I think Labour hasn't really captured that in any meaningful sense for a very long time. You have to go back right to when I was in my early 20s to really have found that message in British politics and it was coming from my party at the time. We just haven't managed to convince people that life can be better and that really is why I've been spending my time on the backbenches setting up things like the Centre for Towns because I don't just want to acknowledge how hard things are for people. I want to give them a really meaningful sense that life can be different and it can be better. So obviously we're in this summer season, there's a lot of political stories around, but the most striking thing is that both of the main political parties are mired in racism rows at the moment as we're recording this. The Conservatives are caught up in this row about whether or not to punish Boris Johnson, about his comments about burqas, and then you've got Labour, which is still struggling with this anti-Semitism problem. And you do have to say from a Westminster perspective, it's very inward-looking when you've got these great challenges, not least Brexit, what that looks like, how we make our economy work better, how we make the regions work better, all these different things, and yet both of the main political forces are just talking to themselves. I think the, the sentiment behind that is right, It feels very much to me like politics is very introverted at the moment and that particularly there is a sense here in Wigan from the people that I represent that most political parties now are more interested in political parties than they are in the country and that's something that Labour is going to have to deal with. While we're talking to ourselves, we're not speaking directly to the concerns and interests of the country and that is really difficult. But... That's not to downplay the significance of what's happening. First of all, the fact that you've got a Tory politician who is trading on one of the most marginalised groups in the country in order to pursue his own personal ambitions and his odds-on favourite to become the next Prime Minister is really serious. The fact that trust has broken down so fundamentally in the Labour Party that the Jewish community feels, almost without exception, that we are part of the problem and not the solution. These are really, really serious things. And behind that, as these things have escalated, I was listening to Dominic Grieve yesterday talking about Boris's prime minister, I won't be in the Tory party, is a a pressure on the political parties as entities that 
even five years ago, was unimaginable. There's a realignment going on in British politics, partly prompted by Brexit, but not exclusively because of that, that calls into question whether the political parties will continue to exist in their current form. Do you think they will? Do you think the Labour Party will still be as we know it now in five, ten years' time? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. It feels to me that there is a fracture at the moment between those who are advocating for an agenda that is very sort of liberal, feels quite cosmopolitan, very global in outlook, and those who are speaking much more for security, social conservatism, the sort of things that I hear all the time in Wigan. Which camp would you put yourself in between those two? That's the challenge for Labour, is that we've never won by being only one or the other. And there's a genuine debate going on in the Labour Party about which of those polls, those constituencies we speak for. Actually, Labour can't win without speaking for both. But the last time there was a concerted attempt to try and unite those two often very diverse interests, I think was in the mid-90s. And part of what we've been trying to do at Centre for Towns is not just speak for the towns, we want to give voice to people in towns, but to think what is it that unites those very young, more middle class, very globally connected, very socially liberal voters in a city like Manchester What is it that unites them with my constituents here in Wigan who are much older, who tend to be working class, who are very socially conservative in outlook and who voted overwhelmingly to leave in the referendum? And unless Labour can answer that question, we can't form a government. More fundamentally, actually, if no political party can answer that question, there isn't a very good future for the country because those two groups at the moment are pitted against one another in terms of the future and that's not sustainable. You've always had that bridge in Labour, you might call it the Hampstead to Humberside alliance, where you've had the social metropolitan liberals in North London versus, you know, as you said, the more socially conservative working class folks in Humberside. The problem is Brexit goes right down the middle of that bridge and erodes it, that the North London Hampstead type of voter, not exclusively there, but that sort of mindset, they are the very strong Remain voters. And a lot of those people are involved with the People's Vote campaign to have another referendum to reconsider Brexit. They're on the other side of that, people who are some of the most strongest Brexit supporters and want to just get on with leaving and may even be quite happy to just leave with no deal next March because they do want to get on with it and they feel very strongly. And I guess this is why the Labour Party's leadership has been in so many convulsions over Brexit because of that divide. I mean, the Labour Party's dilemma, though, is the country's dilemma. We represent some of the most heavily Remain and heavily Leave voting areas in the country. And reconciling that is very difficult for Labour, but somebody's got to do it or there is no future for the country. I mean, this is what May is wrestling with at the moment. How do you find a way forward that actually deals with the concerns that prompted the Leave vote, but also deals with the very real concerns that have been voiced since, at the time and since, by people who voted Remain as well? I suppose I'd say a few things. One is that I think Labour actually is in a stronger position to do this than we perhaps realise. If you look at David Lammy's constituency in Tottenham and mine in Wigan, one is old, one is young, one is socially liberal, one is socially conservative, one is diverse, one is homogenous. One voted overwhelmingly to remain, the other overwhelmingly to leave. But what unites those two areas is Labour. Consistently, over time, people have come out and voted for the Labour Party because they share our values. So we are 
the right people, I think, to be able to do this. But that means compromise, consensus, listening and leading is the only way to deal with it. And at the moment, the problem is that we went from this very, very destructive, divisive referendum campaign straight to the technical and legal aspects of how to deal with the vote to leave without actually pausing for a moment and thinking what's just happened here? What was it that people were trying to tell us and how do we make sure that we address that when we move forwards? And my worry is that we end up with some kind of compromise on those technical and legal aspects of what comes next, but without having addressed the things that gave rise to the leave voting constituencies like mine in the first place. I think that's a very legitimate concern. You know, the whole Brexit debate has been about the intricacies of the Norway option, the calendar option, no deal, whatever you want to call it. And that had to happen because the government had to enact on the Brexit vote. And you wrote a powerful piece for the FT last year where you said a lot of your voters voted Brexit as the last line of defence that their lives they lead, their high streets that don't have shops, poor public services, poor transport links, the list goes on and on and on. Once we finally leave in March next year, or begin to leave, I should say, because that's going to be the beginning of the transition period, and then it's going to be quite a few years before the final break with the block has been made, at which point do you think change will actually come? I'm guessing you're probably going to say it's when there's a Labour government, but at which point do you think things will actually begin to change and there will be capacity within Whitehall to do that? Because it's a fair point to say that the government has been entirely gummed up with this complicated process of untangling 40 years of trading and economic relations. So bringing all this change at the same time was never going to be realistic. Yeah, the trouble is that I don't think that at the moment there's a sense here in Wigan that any political party has acknowledged why people voted to leave and the very real problems that they have in their lives. No, not really, actually. To be honest with you, one of the problems about what's happened since the referendum is that there are too many people who equate Leave voters with UKIP values. And the truth is that in a town like mine, there was a real surge from about 2005 onwards for UKIP, but that vote has largely disappeared. And And has that come back to Labour, or has some of that gone to the Conservatives? uh, Some has gone Tory, some has gone Labour, and some, quite a lot, have stayed at home. And I think that tells you something, that people feel very strongly and have for some time that there isn't anything that inspires them to come out and actually put that cross in the ballot paper. I worried in the early 2000s that that was about apathy. The UKIP surge was quite helpful in that it made me and many other people in towns like this understand that this isn't apathy, this is anger about what is happening. And the Brexit referendum, when I went out campaigning across most of the north of England over those six months in the run-up to the referendum, spent time in not just in Wigan, but in Bolton, in Middlesbrough, in Sunderland. And in all of those areas, what people were saying to us is, this is our chance to get you to start dealing with the things that we are losing. It wasn't that they had nothing left to lose, it's that they had precisely that. They had some really important things about their lives, their jobs, their communities that they wanted to defend and they wanted us to defend them. I was born in Manchester in 1979, the year Thatcher came to power. And when 
I was born, Manchester was much older than the surrounding towns like Wigan, Bury, Bolton, because the industry was in towns. And what's happened to towns like mine over those 40 years is that as all of the jobs and investment have increasingly become concentrated in cities, we've lost our working age population. And that's what accounts for the decline of high streets, the issues around loneliness, the problems with public transport, because we don't have the commuter numbers that we used to. And the loss of community institutions. It was the Tory MP, Jesse Norman, who said these institutions, libraries, community pubs are the things that help to shape and define us as we help to shape and define them. It's the beating heart of communities that has been lost over that last 40 years. The fact that you can't now see a future where your children will be able to find work near you, where you'll know your grandchildren, where you'll have your family around you as you get older. This is what accounts for a lot of the anger that we're seeing expressed through politics at the moment. This is what I don't think anybody's addressing properly, has even acknowledged, let alone is setting out a vision for the country that looks very difficult. I think Labour is the best place political force to do it, but unless we do it, to answer your question, I don't think things will change. Now, let's just flip it around a bit and talk about you for a moment. So you've been an MP since 2010. What was the reason that you went into Parliament? You'd worked in the charity sector. What was the motivation? Frustration, actually, was the main motivating force. I'd left university in 2001. So I'd spent almost a decade working under a Labour government, which was very supportive of us, a Labour councillor. For a few years before I got elected to Dare Parliament. I use the word Blairite? Sort of the opposite, actually. I was fairly disillusioned with the direction of travel, the lack of fundamental change. I was very supportive of, you know, minimum wage, investment in health and education, of course. But I felt very, very strongly that this sort of idea that you could allow inequality to grow hugely in the economy and that you could use some of the trickle-down effects to redistribute wealth just seemed to me not sufficient or sustainable. And I had very fundamental disagreements with the last Labour government over issues like education. I was working with refugee families in the voluntary sector at the time and was increasingly angry about the way in which migrants and refugees were demonised and scapegoated. We were working with children in immigration detention, which had increased hugely under the last Labour government with the support of the Tories. And I felt very, very frustrated about the lack of fundamental change that I saw. So working with homeless teenagers and then with migrant children, what I really came to understand over that decade is that if you wanted change for those children, fundamentally it was about power. Who has it and who doesn't? And the circumstances of their lives were so often set before they were even born. The circumstances of their parents was the biggest determination of what would happen to them. And despite everything that they tried to do and that we tried to do, it was very, very difficult to change it. And so eventually, after several years of working in the voluntary sector, I thought the only way to change this is politics, because politics is about power and who has it. When you look back on the time now, because you said you rose quite quickly under Ed Miliband's leadership, you were PPS and then you became very shadow minister roles. What was the biggest mistake Labour made during those opposition years? From 2010 onwards? Yeah. Well, you say I rose very quickly. I was my intake was promoted very fast and uh, it was a sort of break in a way because obviously Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had that era finished when Ed Miliband became leader so lots of people from your intake rose pretty quickly re- really quickly from a historical perspective yeah I was on the front bench pretty quickly but in terms of the 
sort of mood of the time. I was actually one of the last people to make it onto the front bench. I spent a couple of years on the back benches. I was working with Tessa and I was doing the select committee. In a way, that was quite helpful for me because it gave me time and space to find my feet, to find my voice, to to really ground myself here and make sure that I knew what I was representing in Parliament and that I could do that effectively. So from my point of view, I was fairly removed from the leadership. At least for the first couple of years, I was watching it from the outside. And then on the front bench, I, was, I wasn't one of the insiders. And just watching what happened over those few years... I think one of the big problems for Labour actually is that we we were so focused on getting across the line in 2015 and that was from day one that it felt that it was very tactical, that we never really had a proper debate as a party about what had happened and where we were going to sort of review what had happened over those years in government and to start thinking again about our purpose. For me, there was something that happened over that time in government where we came to see our purpose as being about redistributing wealth and forgot that Labour was always much more radical than that, was about restoring power in its widest sense back to people who rightfully own it. And that that would have given us the plank of a much more radical, much more relevant, much more progressive agenda than the one that we actually went into the 2015 election with. I think Ed Miliband would say the same things as well, that when he's been asked about what are the lessons from Jeremy Corbyn's success and leadership, it was that he took bold solutions to the challenges facing the country at the moment. And I think Labour hadn't been out of power that long by the time it came to the 2015 election. So it was that sense of just one more heave and we'll be there. Whereas, in fact, I think there was something far more fundamentally challenging there. I think work is a really good example of this. With a Labour Party, work is central to our agenda and always has been. And yet, Over that time, it felt very much that we didn't have very much to say about the modern nature of work. So you had one debate going on that was about, should we re-nationalise a lot of our industries? A lot of those industries, actually industries where people are much less likely to work in towns like mine now than they were 30 years ago. On the other hand, you had this debate going on about technology and robots and what the economy of the future was going to look like. In the meantime, over the course of those few years, you had this enormous growth in agency work, casual labour, call centres, people working in warehouses. And actually, it felt that Labour had very little to say about that. What does there was a lot of talk about zero hours contracts and working conditions from that time. There was a very, very long debate about zero hours contracts and what to do about them. And if I'm honest with you, it, where we ended up was really impossible to explain to people about the way in which we wanted to limit the use of zero-hours contracts. But what we didn't have was a vision for what comes next. So you look at a town like Wigan, for example, my constituents are rightly very, very proud of the fact that we built this country's wealth. We powered the country through the mining industry for many years. And most people that you meet here will either have worked in the mines themselves or have a parent and grandparents who did. And there's a nostalgia there, but it's not a nostalgia for reopening the coal mines. You won't find a single person here who would want their children to have that future. But the nostalgia is about a stable job that enabled you and your family 
to have work that enabled you to be near to your family, your kids, your grandkids, to have a decent wage, to have a community life that was underpinned by that industry and that kept this town going and to be contributing something to the country. You know, you look at what's happened since. We've done better in Wigan than many other areas, partly because of our proximity to Manchester. But people either have to commute for work into Manchester or they have to move away to get those opportunities. We've got things like food production here. But we've still got this huge legacy of skills from that mining era. And we should be able to put those to better use than we currently are. We have a number of Libyans who study at the local college. They come over here because of those engineering skills that we can still teach to people. But why is it that young people from Wigan aren't at the forefront of developing clean energy? Why is it that they're assembling solar panels rather than designing battery technology? Why can't this generation of young people power us through the next century, just like their grandparents powered us through the last. That's the sort of vision that was lacking in the last parliament. My concern is that with everything that's happened with the civil war in the Labour Party, with the issues around Brexit, is that we just still haven't got that sort of fundamental vision on offer to people. And they are desperate for it. I feel it everywhere I go in this town at the moment. And in fact, in every town that I visit around the country and the first party to really get to grips with that and to understand it and to put that on offer to the electorate, I think will be in a different era altogether. And I think that's very much the lesson of the 2017 election then, that both parties were offering change. The most the, the manifesto the Conservative put forward was ill-thought-out change and was not consistent. And Jeremy Corbyn's was some change now as well. But you've offered me a very nice segue onto <laughs> the state of the Labour Party now. So when Mr Corbyn first became leader, you went straight to the top as a shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. And you did that for about nine months until the EU referendum. What was the reason that you quit that? That position and you backed Owen Smith and there was some talk at that time I recall of you maybe even thinking about putting your hands to the ring was that ever serious? It was never serious I can say that absolutely hand on Were you heart. urged to do it? Not only in the vague sense that people always say oh, why don't you, I mean there's always speculation it's one of the scourges of modern politics is that every day there's some kind of article about runners and riders It's people like me who create it's that you. speculation yeah, exactly. I, know, I was eyeballing you quite hard there when I said <laughs> it. The only time that I ever had a serious conversation with anyone about running for leader of the Labour Party was actually way back in 2014 when there was a discussion about if we don't win the next general election what are we going to do but I can honestly say to you hand on heart there's never been any kind of discussion from me about doing that the thing that has always struck me with the constant leadership speculation is that far too much thought it goes into who's going to lead the political party far too little thought goes into what we're leading and what is the vision and what is it that's on offer and in the Labour Party this is really serious because we should know better than anybody else that individuals don't change things. It's movements and it's ideas. The People's History Museum, which is not very far from here, it's, um, a very good museum. A, it's amazing. And it has a slogan on the wall that says there have always been ideas worth fighting for. And that sort of sense, I think, has been really lost. And that's the thing that I'm much more interested in. And the reason that I left the Shadow Cabinet in the end was, for some people, it was around Brexit. For me, it was much more because... I went in to see Jeremy the day after all the resignations had started. I had a conversation with him that didn't go 
brilliantly, if I'm honest. That John McDonnell was also in, and, and various other members of the. Was show. it about the party's position or about your position? I mean, or? essentially, I'd gone in to try and help and to say this is a complete mess, and we've got to sort it out, and I can help you to do it, but I want to know that this is serious, that we're going to try and move on from this, heal the party, and win the country, and then fundamentally change it. I, I came out of that meeting feeling that not only was there no real desire to move on from the internal civil war, but there were people in and around the leadership who were absolutely determined to stoke it. And that doesn't take away from the other side who were in a similar position. It doesn't excuse any of the things that happened over that time. But I just felt that with a one-year-old child, having been in the shadow cabinet in a fairly technically demanding brief having stepped up to a level that I hadn't operated at before and gone out and really fought for the party and tried to hold the thing together with both hands in the most difficult year possibly in our history, that if I was going to stay in at such personal cost to my family and to myself, then I needed to be clear that it was going somewhere and that the leadership particularly was absolutely determined to move us on and I came away with no sense about that at all. And that actually brings us to where we are now about this ongoing anti-Semitism now, which I can't believe this is still going on that you know this is really began not long after Mr Corbyn became leader and the whole route began again this summer over the new definition of anti-Semitism and in a more mainstream discourse the most obvious thing for the party would have been to adopt the IHRA definition include that as part of the party's constitution which has been done by the Welsh government the Scottish government a 130 councils, straightforward and done. Yet instead, it chose an option that has created and stoked tensions and it's still arguing about it now. And I imagine we'll be arguing it through the whole summer and well into party conferences. You know, how does it end? Well, I suppose it ends with us trying to confront how we've got to this point, really. And how is it that trust is so fundamentally broken down, not just between Labour and the Jewish community and all its complexity, but actually how is trust so fundamentally broken down within the party that we can't even have a sensible conversation about something this important and that's what I think everybody in the party ought to be asking ourselves and trying to deal with which is why I think the failure to consult the Jewish community about what anti-semitism is the failure to adopt the IHRA definition in full the action that's been taken against a couple of MPs over the last few months has been fairly inexplicable and you could resolve all of that very, very quickly. I mean, the Home Affairs Committee did a really good report on anti-Semitism only a year and a half ago and in that they spoke to human rights campaigners on the Palestinian cause. They spoke to, when I say the Jewish community, I mean every strand of opinion within the Jewish community was represented in that report and they came up with a solution that was accepted by all of those groups. It seems to me that that work having been done, if they can do that, the Labour Party ought to be able to do that as well. You just have to keep concluding, because this row keeps going, that the leadership doesn't seem to want to solve this quite easily, because it claims it wants to, but then it's not doing the actions that you and many other Labour MPs have said are so straightforward to do. I'm not close enough to the leadership now to really understand why we've got to this point. In March, there was a fairly constructive set of meetings between the leadership and various Jewish organisations. And it seemed that we were making progress. And then a few months later, we got this definition without any consultation. 
it's really hard to understand how we got to this point. The problem now, though, is much more fundamental. It's about a complete breakdown of trust, I think, within the party. There was quite a helpful intervention, I thought, from one of the people who've been very active in and around the leadership a couple of days ago about the Tom Watson calls for him to resign and there was a Twitter storm. There started to be people like Clive Lewis who came out and said, look, we've just got to stop this. We've got to stop treating each other like we're the enemy and start thinking about what it is that unites us and how we move forward. And until there's a laying down of those arms, this will continue. So it's an attitude shift, really. And what would be incredibly helpful from my point of view is if we could have those messages coming from the very top of the party. And I think if Jeremy were to come out and do that, he would find very, very strong support from me and from many other people. And finally, this brings me on to something that you've again talked about, the sort of general nastiness that is surrounding the whole of British politics at the moment, but also particularly within Labour, because as I said, in that 2016 contest, you backed Owen Smith, who challenged Jeremy Corbyn. And I remember you saying at the time that this what was being said to you online and in person was really quite bad in a way and we've had ebbs and flows sometimes it's calmed down but it does feel again as we're hitting sort of that crucial Brexit point as the anti-semitism round goes on that things are getting really quite nasty again and that's not really helpful to anyone. It's really dangerous actually I mean we've had a normalisation of hate in British politics not just in the Labour Party you know we've had the resurgence of the far right We've had real issues in the Tory party as well. And just the political discourse now is about demonising other people and incredibly negative, incredibly abusive, quite threatening at times. And it's really, really dangerous, I think. This sense that we can attack one another, dehumanise one another, that we can't disagree fundamentally disagree without hating one another. I wrote a piece about it after Amber Rudd resigned, there was um, a sort of gleefulness amongst some sections of the left, and there were some really horrendous things written online. That is dangerous for the country, but it's also a dead end for the Labour Party. We've only ever won when we've convinced the public that there is a more hopeful, more optimistic, better world on offer than the one that we're currently in. And so for all of us, this matters. But for the Labour Party particularly, this is quite existential. And then finally, some quick fire yes, no questions <laughs> oh, before we end, which are always fun. Lisa, do you think Brexit can ever be a success? Well, do I have to say yes or no to that? I mean, yes, you do. I think the country can be a success. And I think that we've got to find a way through. So what's that? Is that a yes? I don't know. It's not Brexit that will make it a success. It's us. Really, I'm not doing this right at all, am I? It's terrible. <laughs> Would you ever leave the Labour Party? Uh, no, I don't think so. Would you ever leave Wigan? Nah, I'm very unlikely to leave Wigan. Would you ever run for the leadership? Unlikely again. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn will make a good Prime Minister? Uh, I think he can, but we've got to sort these problems out. And that's great. Thank you very much. And that's it for this special episode of FT Politics. Lisa, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. We'll be back next week with another special guest. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, try FT Big Picture. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha, and John Thornhill as they explore the most significant questions of our age 
In the latest episode, to be published on Monday, Martin Sanbu examines economic insecurity and the future of the welfare state. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.